Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, we are back for season three of Stop the Killing. Thank you so much for joining us. And while we've been squirreling away on the new season, we've been so grateful for the continued support of our ever-growing Patreon community, which segues me nicely into giving a warm welcome and a huge thank you to our newest Patreon member, Larry Martin. And if you're listening and want to get a flavour of all of the bonus content we have, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing to check it out. And with that, on with the first episode of season three. Today I want to talk to you about what is probably the most horrific incident that I dealt with here, a shooting at a nightclub in Orlando, actually, Florida, here in the States. It was a typical kind of nightclub building, right? The types of place where we go to eat out for evening of dining and dancing. And I don't know how you'd call that in your neck of the woods. We'd say we're out in the Raz. Uh, yeah, we have none of those cute words. You guys have been around <laughs> longer, you're better at it. You know, shootings, though, in these public places, you're, there are worst case nightmares. In this case, we had more than 100 people, actually with hundreds of people, crammed into a building they were celebrating Latin night. And that's where we begin. It was June 12th, 2016, 2 a.m. So a 29-year-old man, he's armed with a semi-automatic rifle and a nine-millimeter handgun, enters this nightclub, and he begins shooting patrons with the semi-automatic rifle. Within minutes, many of them are killed. Now, this club is kind of a rectangular-shaped box. So the inside of it, there are actually three kind of bar areas, but two sides to it. And so the main dance floor has a bar at the end of it. And the main dance floor is packed with people. Now this building is in a very uh, suburban area. It's two blocks from a fire station. It's about six blocks from a hospital, as I recall. There's potential medical assistance right away. You know, as he steps in this front door, this is really the sad part. He walks right past the host's table, and within seconds, he is shooting indiscriminately on the dance floor. He stops, and he turns his automatic weapon across the dance floor. And as he walks towards the back, towards the bar, he exchanges magazines, and he moves kind of in a half circle to get on the other side of the wall and to the other dance floor and the bathrooms on the other side, and he continues to spray rounds there. Then he circles back around that wall and comes back to the main dance floor. And he continues to fire at anything he sees moving on the main dance floor. He is within feet of many of these people. He stops only to change magazines. From the tactical aspect, this is a very simplistic crime, but terrible consequences. And almost immediately, law enforcement is there. Killer runs 
from them, hides in a bathroom where the other patrons are located. And what we end up with is a kind of hostage barricade situation, we would call it, which really uh, turns the whole tables on how law enforcement deals with this. And so three hours later, police blast through exterior stone walls in the building and finally get into a firefight with this subject and kill him. So just so you understand the gravity of what happened, there were 49 people killed inside, another 53 shot and wounded, and and another five injured, not from firearms, but injured. So more than 100 people in minutes in this nightclub. Wow. I mean, just think about that. 102. That's such a huge number. 102 people killed or injured in just this absolutely horrific and utterly evil way. I mean, why would anyone even walk into a nightclub at 2am with a semi-automatic weapon? What gets someone to that point? Part of this goes really to the killer himself. He was looking for a place to do this shooting. We know that because of work done by the FBI and others on his cell phone and his internet activity in the weeks and months before. So he had been looking for a target. And we knew that he had searched actually for bars. He stopped by this particular bar just beforehand and got a wristband so he could go in. So he stopped by briefly, but he had been driving around kind of from surveillance video and from other coverage. We can tell that he was looking for someplace. And it's really eerie to watch. Like I've seen a lot of the internal surveillance video that hasn't been released publicly. And it's eerie to see this guy walk in, stand on the dance floor, Mm. look around, at uh, all these people. And then I know that 10 minutes later or so, he came back. He had just been looking for a place to shoot. So chilling. How long before he actually returned? Oh, maybe less than a half an hour. Last call was going on at the bar. I think this bar had a a 2 a.m. license. He walked around the building. He came in this small little front vestibule where a few employees were charging patrons and checking IDs and putting on wristbands. Did he shoot at any of them as he walked past? No, actually, he actually shot at one of them, but he really pretty much walked right past. It was those classic beaded strands in front of the door uh, that hang down that help to keep the light out and you can't see inside as much. And he just plowed right past them. And I've seen that before. I think that he had seen the dance floor and it doesn't surprise me to see that because really a killer gets in their head where they're going to attack first. I think we see that a lot. And so this person wanted to attack this crowd And so he headed directly to the crowd he wanted to attack. And, you know, if you think about it, we saw that in Columbine. The shooter had hundreds of kids in the cafeteria, but ignored them. One of the killers was in the cafeteria a couple of times. In workplace shootings, we see this. For example, you know, a troubled employee, somebody maybe who was fired, they enter a building, they walk straight to the boss's office because they want their target first. And then after that, it's different. That makes sense, I guess. He must have had a lot of firepower to kill and injure that many people. Yeah, it's a little bit of a perfect storm. I think that's really what happened here. Uh, I think that by calculations, there were about 300 people inside the building. So they were pretty much packed in body to body. They were celebrating. It was last call. They'd consumed an awful lot of alcohol. They were celebrating Latin night. So part of it is there was a very high density in terms of people and somebody steps in with a a semi-automatic rifle and they fire a round, one of those rifle rounds can go a half a mile. It's not stopping at the person it hits. It's stopping after it hits that person, goes through that person, hits another person, shreds apart, pieces of it hit other people. Shootings are horrible events. So watching it, I will say this, the patrons really didn't have a lot of time to react. 
Some of them did, you know, in our run, hide, fight thinking, we know a, a lot of people did try to run. Maybe somebody could have disrupted this killer when the magazine exchange was going on. They could have, but I think that there was a level of a shortness of time, a high level of alcohol and a limited uh, ability. It would have been impossible for the first people to do that, but I don't think that we would have been able to say that about all the subsequent. I mean, it's possible, but it was noisy, right? There was music playing and lights flashing. Actually, a DJ was one of the first to hear the gunshot sounds and turned his music down. And he was kind of yelling to everybody to run. He turned it down because he could hear his music and he heard sounds that didn't match the music. And so he tells everybody to start running and to get out of there that there's a guy with a gun. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital or maybe you just lost it well stubforge.com is here to change that imagine this tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal because each ticket from stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game, or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. So we're in Pulse Nightclub. There are 300 or so people in the building, you know, having a great night out, dancing on the dance floor when this killer walks in with a semi-automatic rifle and just starts firing left, right and centre. So tell me, how much time did this incident actually take? Less than 10 minutes, most of it within less than five minutes. There are exits in the building and people have run out to patios and think about 300 people or so. A lot of people got out. Some of them were wounded. Some of them heard the shooting and, and left or they were on a patio and they just continued to flee. So it isn't that everybody there was shot and that was the end of it. It's just that there were so many injuries because it was so packed in. But I think it, we also know that everybody came in the front door and uh, I'm sure that they didn't actually know that there might be side doors or back doors which makes a kind of perfect storm, right? Yeah, certainly sounds like it. Was there any security or any barriers to stop them getting in in the first place? Well, yeah, again, perfect storm, right? Yes, there was an off-duty police officer. He had been hired for security, 
but he wasn't at the front door because he was in the parking lot dealing with an underage drinker. So he's not there when it happens. He's in the parking lot. As soon as he hears the shooting, he's trained, right? He's carrying a handgun. He hears automatic weapons fire going on in the building. He immediately radios in and says, shots are fired, shots are fired. He gives the address and everything. He already knows there are multiple people down. He doesn't even know that. He hasn't seen it, but he knows it because he's trained and he he gets that. He knows right away, this is a bad situation. So police are coming immediately, right? Within a minute, he has the first other law enforcement officer there. Did nobody actually see him coming in with the gun? Because it's a big weapon, right? Remember, it's two o'clock in the morning. It's dark outside. He parks on the side of the building, maybe four parking spots or so away from the front corner of the building. So he pulls into the lot. He parks on the side parking lot. He takes these weapons out. He's holding this long gun, as many people often do, you know, by their side or in front of them. And he just gets out of his car. He marches right around the corner of the building. And then then he's there. So it's really just a matter of seconds. When you watch it on tape, your heart races because you're seeing him get out of the car and you're saying, one, two, three steps, four, five, six, seven. Oh, he's at the front of the building. Suddenly he's in the building. You switch surveillance tape. Suddenly he's inside and on the dance floor. It's It seems like it's just seconds and he's on the dance floor shooting people. So I think that that idea of did somebody see it? Could they have called? It doesn't apply in these kinds of situations. That's the tragedy of it, right? Catherine, you said before that it takes three hours for the police to bring this to a conclusion. So what is happening in those three hours? This is a challenge for me to answer. It's difficult as a law enforcement officer, you know, 20 years in law enforcement. You you never want to second guess another law enforcement officer's decision. I will say that there was an after action done, meaning that another agency or another organization looked at all the details and tried to explain what happened. And then they look for lessons learned. And I will say that the lessons learned, I didn't see a lot of written documentation on what any lessons learned were. So bear with me as I try to detail some of the facts that I think we did take out of the 911 tapes and the surveillance videos that I viewed way too many times to to give us some little pieces here and there of what we did learn, because it was three hours before they stopped him. And I know there are law enforcement officers who've said publicly that there were opportunities to uh, stop the shooter before three hours into it. And those opportunities were missed. Let me just give you a couple of a little bit of a rundown on kind of what police were doing, but what we also know from tapes, right? So first of all, you know, we have this officer in the parking lot. And in less than two minutes, he's there with two other people, two other officers join him that have their own long guns. And so they actually see the killer at a doorway and fire at him. And the killer returns inside. So that's like within just within those first few minutes, he retreats inside and at some point, as it turns out, runs towards a women's bathroom. And he's already, like I said, he's fired hundreds of rounds and and the police officers are gathering in a parking lot very quickly. And their radio transmission transcripts were released publicly almost immediately. They really give us a great idea of the minute by minute activities that were going on. And when you talk about how many people were killed and whether shots were still being fired and things like that. One of the factors is shots being fired. But the other thing about three hours is people bleeding out. There were people who were shot who were bleeding out. There's a fire station two blocks away, you know, hospital a few blocks further, and people inside the building were bleeding out. And so dispatch is getting phone calls and phone calls. 
and there are dispatchers who probably still have nightmares about it, who are on the phone with people inside, people who are begging for law enforcement to come in, people who are with their cousins and their cousins are in their laps bleeding out, things like that. So really horrific stories. And in addition to that, the dispatchers are on the phone with patrons who are huddled in bathrooms or hiding under counters or laying on floors bleeding out. And they are asking for assistance. And while you are hearing the dispatch call, you're hearing gunshots in the background. So it's like, can you help me? (laughs) Help, he's killing us. (laughs) So you're hearing the gunshots over the dispatch lines. And the transcripts, which were released publicly very quickly, indicate so. Your dispatchers are saying, we're still hearing gunshots. We're still hearing gunshots. So it's at some point where he's still in the building, but law enforcement hasn't entered. And we know that eventually he ends up in that bathroom. And there's another uh, situation. So for instance, the first call to 911 comes in at 2.02. About four minutes into it, three of these officers begin to approach the club, but a, a SWAT team commander, lieutenant, arrives. And it appears that he tells them to stand down. And he begins to make up his own contact team as other officers arrive. And he tells them to stand by while the SWAT team comes. And suddenly we have law enforcement officers outside. We see the subject again at some point. Another person fires at the subject. And they chase him closer to the building. And I think at that point, he runs into the women's bathroom. But even the after action, and even all of our ability to see the video surveillance, doesn't give us quite the full picture of that. You know, my reading of the after action has a lot of details in all of the fantastic work they did to save the lives of the people who they drug off the dance floor while the subject was still in the bathroom or who they were able to save from hiding underneath this bar counter or on the back patio. And so the after action details the people saved. I think it it maybe lacks in what could have been done to maybe save more potentially. And again, that's where I say it's really hard as a law enforcement officer to criticize another agency. But I think that I'm I'm certainly not the only voice here. As good a job as they did in after action is to tell us how they could have done a better job. And I've definitely read accounts of law enforcement who have said that the fact that they let the subject get into the bathroom and they didn't follow him into the bathroom is just wrong based on what we know about protocol now. I can't make that go away. So what did happen, in fact, is that while this uh, SWAT commander is there, he also creates his own team who are going to approach from the other side of the building. And so the three original officers talk with some other guys and they make a decision that some people are going to go in on one side. The SWAT team is going to go in on another side. We see two teams going from two different locations but they do it well after the subject has been chased into a bathroom. In fact, what happens is one of the officers tells the media at one point they were headed towards the bathroom and they were told to stand down until the SWAT team arrived, which they did, he said, for 15 or 20 minutes. I'm so wanting to not ever criticize police for doing the best they can under the circumstances in a terrible situation. But the Orlando Police Department, who is a responding agency, had some active shooter training at this time, but I think that they had more perfunctory training. And I know that they now have a lot more training in that. And I think that they didn't really understand as well as they could have how to shift from contain and wait to 
active shooter training, which is aggressively to go after the shooter and to stop the threat. That's the difference. And we expect that. It's not even former law enforcement criticizing them. It is the current modern protocol. It's what the public expects. The public expects that they're going to get this. I'll tell you, eight or 10 minutes into it, there were like five additional shots heard. And this was as the SWAT lieutenant's team was breaking windows in the far side of the building. They were moving inside, but they remained in the hallway from the bathroom uh, stationed by a bar, you know, according to the after action. At one point, the dispatcher can hear, you know, calls from inside the bathroom from a person who has 10 other people climbing inside of a handicap stall saying, he's in the bathroom, he's in the bathroom, he's in the bathroom. Come and get us, he's in the bathroom. They're crammed in there and the shooting is still going on. Because he's in the handicap stall, he feels maybe the ability to dial 911 from his phone. But the shooter is in the bathroom at large, killing people in the bathroom too. At some point, somebody on the SWAT team's group is heard firing additional shots, maybe because the guy tried to peek out the door. The after action isn't really very clear about that. And he's yelling, put your hands out, put your hands out. Somebody hears him say, but the team doesn't move to the bathroom. So what they begin to do is the contact teams begin to evacuate anybody they can in the building. Because remember, now we think we have a guy in a bathroom. So we have a lot of people on a dance floor, a separate wall between them. And the one team has come in from the far end where the big dance floor is. And now you're seeing them walk over bodies and pick up people. And they begin this process of trying to get people out of the building to see if they can save their lives. So, you know, that's 15 minutes into the incident. What we see now is what we would call a barricaded subject kind of changes our protocols. And 18 minutes into it, the SWAT team commander calls for a full SWAT call out. It's completely changed the dynamics. So when the team comes out, they do a logistical analysis of where the subject is in the building and how they might be able to attack it. Can they send in robots? Can they put explosives against the wall? Could they do a dynamic entry where they all run in there with their guns, with their bulletproof vests on and helmets? No, not with a bunch of innocent people in the bathroom. Generally, no. If you have a barricaded subject with all those hostages. So when you have a SWAT team call up, it takes time. And I think we saw that in San Ysidro. It took an hour right in the San Ysidro McDonald's shooting that we talked about that happened in California in last season, we had that conversation. It takes time. And that's why protocols changed from contain and wait uh, to dynamic entry. Such a high pressured situation to try and get sense out of the chaos. I think the most important thing that law enforcement thinks in all of these instances that it goes against the nature of organized people is that it's organized chaos. You have to go ahead and get in there on the little information that you have, you know, here's a piece of information they didn't know. That automatic weapon, once he got into the bathroom, somehow he jammed it and it was useless. All he had was his handgun. But they didn't know that. There's no way they could have known it. So they have to assume that he still has it and still capable of using it. So I would say, you know, I feel like right now this would be the commercial break, right? I need like a big breath of fresh air because we're half an hour into it. And law enforcement has completely changed their situation and they have a barricaded subject and it's 2.35 in the morning. So, so, And now we completely shift course. There's a hostage negotiator that gets involved. Actually, what happens is the subject phones in to the police department and they, because of that, they know his phone number, hostage negotiator calls him back. They go back and forth with some types of things that 
uh, happen in hostage negotiations. Maybe we should have a conversation about that on an episode. Crisis negotiators are just so fascinating, right? I'm all in for that. I'm putting it down in season four notebook right now. Oh, yeah, we should do that. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. So at this point, we really have, at this point, have a hostage negotiation situation. And we just don't really know what we have. He makes a phone call into the police department, which is why they know his phone number. They call him back. They're talking to him. He's talking about explosives or explosive vests. Maybe he's got a bomb in his car. So it's a very complicated and typical crisis negotiation situation that we're dealing with at this point. And so at this point, it's five in the morning before the SWAT team gets their plan together and decides that they're going to blast a hole in the outside wall of the bathroom. And by that time, they've already sent in a robot with a camera to look at the walls inside the building to see if they can find the guy in the bathroom. But, you know, there's bodies and things in the way and the robot can't cross around. It's just a really cluster in many ways. So finally, they make a decision. They blast a hole in the wall. They can't get through. They blast another hole in the wall. They can't get through. They send a backhoe in there. By the time that they get in there, they have a firefight. After three explosions in in that firefight, the, the killer is shot to death. So, you know, in the end, these people came to celebrate Latin night. And we've got all of these people, 49 dead, 53 wounded, and probably uh, several people who bled out because of the time lag, the closest hospital, three four blocks away. So tragically close. It's just sad. What about those people that were in the bathroom? Did any of those survive? Some of them did. Yes, absolutely. Some of them did. And and in the bathroom next door, 
for instance, law enforcement, while they were guarding one door, they were able to get many people out of the adjoining bathroom. And part of that is really the idea that people stopped and froze. It was such a horrific incident. Like I said, it was an alcohol-infused event. You know, they were out dancing and having fun all night. So there's probably less thorough thinking involved and people were frozen in place. And so the law enforcement coming to the location, it did help coax them out of spots sometimes where they were hidden. There were people there with friends and partners, and they were not wanting to leave who they were with, even though that person might have been dead laying on the floor with them. So one of the struggles is that, you know, from a budget standpoint, training is the first thing that seems to always be cut because it seems so it seems so fake. It seems so who knows. And that's probably true in so many industries where we don't do a lot of training. We don't take our training seriously about evacuations when there's going to be a fire or something like that. But training saves lives. And maybe that's my takeaway on this particular incident is that better training for the law enforcement officers, instinctive training of run, hide, fight, because civilians had learned that over and over again, might have saved a lot more lives here. Catherine, I just want to go back to the bathroom for a moment, because he's on a murderous rampage. He's in this bathroom with potential victims. He's got a handgun, I think, at this stage, because his rifle's jammed. Why do you think he didn't kill all of the people that were in there? I think that he became very uh, focused in the bathroom on uh, searching the internet. And uh, he called a news station. After he hung up from the police department, he called a news station. What that really tells us is he wanted to be famous or he wanted to have his cause known. He wanted to tell his story. And we do see that with people who say, let me tell you my story. I don't know if you know the Discovery Channel. Yeah, of course. Their headquarters here in the Washington, D.C. region. We had a actually a hostage barricade situation in, uh, while I was working in the FBI's Washington field office. And the shooter there was on the phone with one of the news agencies who happened to call in. And they called the building looking for information. And the killer picked the phone up. Or the shooter picked the phone up. He didn't kill anybody. He had two hostages. So the shooter picked the phone up and readily talked to the news agency who promptly called me. But he readily talked to the news agency and said, here are my beefs. Go to my website. Here's my name. Because he wanted his story told. You know, the crisis negotiator in this case, interviewed for the after action, said, I felt the longer I kept him on the phone, the less he would be turning uh, in anger to people in the bathroom, which is smart thinking. So that's exactly what happened. Yeah, so I think that it was the distraction of talking to the police, trying to get his story out there, searching for news stories to see whether or not he was in the news. Catherine, let's talk about the elephant in the room, the why. Because I know that Pulse Nightclub had a largely LGBTQ plus clientele. Was that the why? Was this a hate crime? I think we won't know 100%, but I would say based on all of the information that we have, that was not the why. I'm glad you're asking me because I really wanted to just give you a little bit of the facts that we know. Because I feel like there are just some facts that were just left in a dustbin because nobody seemed to really know them. And so instead, the news just created this folklore. I did talk to a a lot of um, the news media during this time, and they were struggling trying to come up with the stories and everybody wants the why. But sometimes you put the why in because it makes you happy to have a why, but it's not the real why. Just like it becomes folklore, like the Columbine killers were all bullied and they were all isolated and they were part of the Trench Coast Mafia, which are all things that we know if you listen to our Columbine podcast 
are not true. So here in the States, media was all over this story. And some of the top reporters in the country were down there scrounging around for why this was an attack on the LGBTQ community. There were scores and scores of stories that ran. All these interviews where people said, I knew him, I dated him, I'd seen him in the bar, I'd rejected him. There were dozens and dozens of stories. But here's what in the aftermath, the FBI behavioral aspects, the investigative people scored through his entire world, every piece of digital information we could find on this subject and more. And we found not one piece of evidence that he killed any of them in the bar or wounded them because of the bar patrons were part of the LGBTQ community. In addition, they found no evidence to support that the shooter was gay himself. No evidence he was motivated by homophobia. He said nothing while he was shooting. Oftentimes when somebody is motivated by hate, they specifically say, they call out and use words. He made no slurs about the LGBT community during that shooting spree. Another thing that was common, there were lots of stories about people who said they dated him. He was on this dating app uh, specifically for LGBTQ. There was no evidence he used any of the dating apps. Although I will say that they did find that he cheated on his wife with a lot of other women. He did look at other targets. And in fact, you know, there's a Disney facility right nearby in Orlando. And Disney has a an area that's called Disney Springs now, but it was called Downtown Disney at the time. And certainly people who travel Disney World know what Disney Springs is. It's a shopping area and has bars and things. And one of the um, bars that's there is Live Nation's House of Blues. And the subject, in fact, was driving around looking for a place to shoot. And he was searching, his internet searching on his phone. You can tell from his searches that he was looking for a place to shoot. And in fact, we know when we piece it together afterwards, he actually bought a a baby carriage, not that night, but before. He didn't have a baby. He's married. He doesn't have a baby. He buys a baby carriage without his wife present. And he has this baby carriage this night and secrets his weapons in the baby carriage and starts pushing it through downtown Disney on the street. And so we see from surveillance pictures, that's where he was. It was right before that night. But he had these weapons in it. They were covered up. And we think that really what happened is he was looking for a place to shoot up. He thought about going to this bar, House of Blues, but there was law enforcement there in downtown Disney. So it does kind of make you wonder, there wasn't a mom there. There was just a guy pushing a carriage and it was late at night. The fact that it's a guy pushing a pram, that wouldn't be a red flag for me. But the fact that he's doing it at nighttime might raise an eyebrow or two. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And as it turned out, the parking lot is pretty close to where this walkway is that he walked up. And so he probably got out of his car. He walked up that walkway. He had the guns in it. And uh, he probably saw law enforcement, the police uh, patrol there. It's late at night. And he saw them. We think our best analysis is we he saw them and he turned around and went back to his car to look for a uh, softer target. And that point, his search engines on his phone show that he started looking for nightclubs Orlando. That's what he was searching for, nightclubs Orlando. So what came up? Pulse nightclub. I will say, though, that perhaps that's true, that it wasn't a hate crime, but it still terrorized right, the community. It terrorized the LGBT community. It's the worst incident that's ever happened at one of the places that they frequent. So we really get an idea of what terrorism is, because um, even without this being categorized as a hate crime, because we have a dead killer on our hands, what we do have is something that is essentially terrorism in the pure sense of the words. I think in all, my summary would be there were opportunities missed. Opportunities missed to stop the shooter before he came in, opportunities missed 
to stop the shooter on the dance floor, opportunities missed before the shooter became a barricaded uh, subject. Right, Catherine, time to talk about the why. What can you tell me about this killer? So our killer is from New York. He's raised a Muslim. He's a first-generation American. His parents immigrated from Afghanistan. So he has no criminal record. So think about this background for this individual and the idea of him walking around with a gun. He was hired to be a prison guard, but he was let go during his probationary period because he was joking about bringing a gun to work. Guards do not carry guns, at least here in the States. From there, he went on to be hired as a security guard. You know, the companies that are hired to protect places like the Pulse nightclub. At one point, he wants to be a police officer. Then he wants to be a state trooper. He cannot make it through the academies. One of the academies tosses him out because he threatens to kill somebody at the academy when he's in a tussle with them at a cookout over a incredibly minor issue. So we have an individual who clearly is angry, who clearly wants to be an authority figure, security guard, police officer, so state trooper, and in fact is a security guard. So five years before the shooting, he gets married. Two years later, he's divorced. His wife says he was mentally unstable and abusive. Maybe he was deeply traumatized by something. But in addition to that, we also learn that he was an avid steroid user. His autopsy shows that he had extensive steroid abuse. So he's carrying weapons, angry, high steroid use, which you know, kind of a walking time bomb. Within a year or so after the divorce, he remarries, he has a son, and he is married at the time of the killings. He's also a trained security guard working for a very well-known company that I've dealt with before at the time of the shooting. He has an active license to carry a gun, and that security company has done screenings on him, including psychological screenings, in 2007 and 2013, clearing him to carry a firearm and to work for the company. So very challenging. There are these opportunities to catch somebody. And I think that what happens is, and I think the truth is that in employment, you know, we see it everywhere, whether it's public or private employment, everybody kind of defaults to the, oh, he's a nice guy, or I don't want to cause trouble for him, or it's good enough. And when you're talking about somebody who's going to be security and carry a gun, it's not good enough. The problem is that we have too many opportunities for people to have guns, but not the opportunities to check to see whether they should carry a gun. And this isn't the f- first security guard who has been involved in a shooting either. I was just going to say, this is, doesn't sound good, but sometimes in, in law enforcement, we interview a lot of people, you, you arrest a lot of people who say, I wanted to be a cop. It's a fine, it's a fine line between cop and gang member. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. you know, if your main focus when you're going to the police academy is so that you can carry a gun and do the firearm stuff, you know, maybe you're not a perfect candidate for the police department, right? <laughs> God, no, exactly. Now, you know, I came up through the FBI and there were 50 people in my class. Very few of them had straight up law enforcement background. There were some who did and military background, you know, and fantastic members of that law enforcement community, but plenty of other people who weren't, right? I was a prosecutor. The person who sat next to me was a helicopter pilot in Desert Storm. The person who sat on the other side of me was a second grade teacher in the Philadelphia school system before he joined the FBI. So the traits you need for law enforcement are not uh, being quick gun and your gun skills. Those are your last resorts, right? In this case, he had a desire to do that. And so that was already kind of predestined. He has this steroid use and his predestiny of wanting to have the power, the firepower and the guns. And so you take that and then you stack on top of it why he did it, why he said he did it. 
right? In a lot of cases, we think we know the why, which is what all that coverage was of LGBTQ. But in fact, we don't know the why. Because in this case, in the hours before the shooting, FBI and police investigators learned later the killer had used several social media sites and he was vowing vengeance for airstrikes overseas in Iraq and Syria. He's driving around at two o'clock in the morning searching for some place to shoot. And remember, I told you he was in the bathroom. He called the police department, but then he hung up after a few minutes. And when he called that police station, he called in saying he was a killer and claiming allegiance to a terrorist group, a foreign terrorist group. So even though the killer uh, is killed here, and I'm not going to go into the details of what his beef was and why he was a terrorist, the fact is that he claimed to be a terrorist. His wife survived him. She wasn't with him. And she was charged, which I can tell you about briefly, but she was criminally charged. But she said as part of the investigation, we did learn that he had been studying uh, certain terrorist groups and he began to even talk to her about his allegiance to those terrorist groups. So let me just say this about how we investigate terrorism and what we think about from somebody who's engaged in terrorism. They fall into three categories, generally. First, say there's a foreign organization or foreign government who is wanting to commit injury to the people of the United States, and they direct somebody to commit a terrorist act in the United States. That is squarely what we saw on 9-11 here in the United States. Foreign terrorist group directing people orchestrating people to fly planes into buildings. That's directed terrorism. Then you can have inspired terrorism, which is somebody who is reading the terrorist magazines, the terrorist websites. They see definitely that this person is inspired and they become consumed by the terrorist organization and their um, incredible marketing, which we know some of these uh, guys have. And so they are inspired by what they've learned from the terrorist organization. So that's the second one, directed And the second one is inspired by, and then the third one is just a lone actor. You hear that term, oh, he's a loner, a lone wolf. What we mean by that is that he acted on his own because he had a particular grievance and he chose to do that on his own, not inspired or directed by any terrorist organization. And you can have those acts of terrorism, even though they're domestic or driven by foreign interests. So a domestic terrorist who is a lone actor might be akin to the Oxford High School shooting, a student who comes into a school, shoots the school up, and kills a bunch of people, and then is charged with terrorism because he is a lone actor, meaning he's not inspired or directed by anybody that's a terrorist group. He's a lone actor. That's where that term comes from. So from those definitions, I'm guessing that he fits into the middle one. He's an inspired terrorist. Exactly. This shooter was radicalized to be a terrorist inspired by what he had read. And even though his wife was charged and acquitted, I'll tell you, he definitely had made several statements to her that made it clear that he was inspired. The director of the FBI publicly said after that there was no indication that there was any plot directed against the United States, no indication that this subject had done this because he was uh, part of an organized network. So he was inspired, absolutely. You know, the wife was charged uh, with providing material support to a foreign terrorist. He would have been categorized as a foreign terrorist. She was charged with providing material support to a foreign terrorist, but she was acquitted at trial. I will tell you that she said at trial, she knew a lot about what was going on. She said, I wish I had done the right thing, but my fear held me back. I wish I had been more truthful. 
I mean, you mentioned that the first wife had been a victim of domestic abuse. Was there any evidence that the second wife was as well? Yeah, I think that was part of the acquittal, right? I mean, I think the jury was aware that there was only so much she can do for whatever reason. For instance, she said at one point she was driving around with him and they drove near downtown Disney. She said, oh, I think we drove past Pulse Nightclub. But in fact, we know from the actual work that the FBI did from their car and from their phones, she actually was never in a car with him driving past the Pulse Nightclub. We think that they were driving near downtown Disney. And so, yes, she drove near a nightclub with him, but it wasn't Pulse nightclub and he wasn't casing it, right? Sometimes you hear more sensationalized versions of this and they'll say he was casing the nightclub. He, he wasn't casing the nightclub in the way that law enforcement would think of casing, but he did drive around. And one of the things that she said is at one point he, he said to her, would people be more upset if I attacked a nightclub or if I attacked something at Disney? That is a red flag comment. Mm-hmm. Is it not? Absolutely. Jeepers. Yeah. And I, I will tell you that when she was asked questions, she agreed that she thought he was perhaps preparing for jihad. He was going to the gun range a bunch of times. He was ready to go. I knew he was going to do something, she said. She said, I saw this as a green light that he was going to do great violence. I knew he was going to do something. And she said when it happened, she knew she couldn't get a hold of him. She knew he was the one who did it. God, how do you live with that? You know, I think that how you live with it, though, I think is just this. And this is what we see a lot. One of the other things she said is, I couldn't believe that the father of my child would do this. Think about the people who worked with him at the security department and what they must have heard, right, from him and how he must have talked and acted and responded and reacted. She saw it. He saw it. Maybe some neighbors saw it. I wonder about the people at the firing range where he was going and practicing. Did he suddenly start? showing up more often. And, you know, they're aware of people too. But this incident more than any other is really an incident where we can't really talk about how, oh, there were lots of signs and people missed all these signs. They're even bigger than that. It's like, are you looking at the people around you and believing that they can commit a terrible act? And especially when it's terrorism, it's hard. Sometimes they're buried a little hard, right? But it's hard to know. It's the saddest story because I struggle with how could we have prevented it? And there were so few people who maybe could have prevented it, but it was a long tale of somebody who became radicalized and nobody uh, saw it or nobody was willing to see it. Well, what a complete shitstorm. Mm-hmm. It was. You're going to struggle to pull out just one hard lesson, I suspect, with this case. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I think I feel an obligation to say that the hard lesson here was we have to support and believe in in better police training and fund it. And we have to continue to hold law enforcement accountable for their actions and make them get better and better at what they do because they are capable of it. You know, we have fantastic, amazing police officers in, in this country and all around the world who choose to go in to danger. And we should give them the best resources and training that we can to do that as safely as they can so they can go home and see their families at night. It's astounding, isn't it, that one person's evil act can have such catastrophic impact on so many people's lives. Absolutely. But if you've been listening to Stop the Killing for a while, you'll know we don't like to leave letting evil have the last word. So Catherine, what stories of humanity and courage and bravery have you pulled out from this horrific case? I'm going to give you two things because this is a horrible story. So many things are horrible and I want you to leave with two very hopeful thoughts here. 
The first one has to do with the FBI. Not surprisingly, there's a little FBI fact in here, not to disregard the amazing 26 different agencies that responded to this, Orlando Fire and Orlando Police and all the other people who responded, not at all to disregard any of that. But one of the things that the FBI did is there were so many people, hundreds, right, of people involved. The FBI mobilized not only dozens of its victim specialists to come and support the police department and come and support the community and local county victim services program, because that's so important. But we also deployed multiple Spanish-speaking agents and professional staff in our department down there, reached out to our LGBTQ advisory committee so that we could send agents and analysts and professional staff who are part of the LGBT community from the FBI to go down there directly. And I'm going to say this because many people don't even know these resources are available, but you know, there were more than 100 direct victims, right? So we count on how many people might have been in contact with this crisis. We always think like six people per victim. So that means there were 600, 700, 800 people who needed support. And in this case, there were people whose families didn't even know about their status, right? So they're a member of the LGBT community and their parents don't know or their parents or families have rejected them. And there are people who have longtime partners who maybe the the families don't even know, people who aren't legally married. So they go to a hospital to find their partner and they're not legally married. So they're not allowed to go see the partner. So I was really heartened to hear that we immediately called our office and our LGBTQ advisory committee and said, we need you to send more people down here who can navigate because it, it's not just having somebody who is in the community. It's the fact that you could navigate the investigative and legal issues in a sensitive way and cut through some of that red tape, for instance, to get a partner in to see a partner who's injured in the hospital, where the hospital rules might not have normally allowed that. I mean, there are situations where bodies aren't picked up because the family doesn't want to acknowledge that they had a, a child killed who was part of that community. So it's just horrific stuff. So it was really good that we were able to bring those people in. And I think it's good that they were able to help in that way. But I wanted to tell you another hopeful story, a really positive thing. Remember, I told you there was a law enforcement officer in the parking lot, and there was a bouncer inside. Well, the bouncer inside was a Marine Corps veteran, Sergeant Imram Yosef. He had left uh, service only a month earlier. So when the shooting started, he recognized the sound of that high caliber rifle immediately. And he started towards the exit. And he got to a certain exit and there was a crowd that was like paralyzed in this doorway and they couldn't get through this seemingly locked door and they were just huddled there. And he's screaming at him. He said, I'm screaming, open the door, open the door, open the door. So he says in a news interview and he said, no one is moving because they're too scared, but he's trained in military. He said, so I felt like there was only one choice I had. Either we all stay there and we all die or I could take the chance. And he started jumping over people, bustled his way through, pushed the door open. And he took 20 people who walked with him. And then they estimate maybe as many as 70 escaped through that doorway. So that's a good story. There were a lot of people who survived because of actions like that, because police officers did step in and guard them while it took them to safety. So there were a lot of good stories and a very horrible story. Well, that's it. Season three is off up and running. And next week, we are starting a series on the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas school shooting from Parkland, Florida, where we'll be joined by some very special guests. So make sure that you've hit the subscribe button or if you want early access 
and to find out more about the upcoming guests, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. But in the meantime, Catherine, what little golden nugget do you want to leave us with today? Don't stop going out. Don't stop going to parties. You know, look for the exit doors and know that this is a rare circumstance. And it's more important that we have fun and enjoy our lives than cower in the corner. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping, don't follow it down. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime event, returns to London on the 21st and 22nd of September 2024. CrimeCon UK is the world's leading true crime event and is partnered by True Crime, the expert-led channel available on your platform of choice. From fascinating sessions with some of the biggest names in true crime to raising a glass with your favourite podcasters, CrimeCon UK is an unforgettable way for you to really immerse yourself into the true crime community. I will be there with my co-host Catherine Schweit from Stop the Killing 
So come and join us and don't forget to quote Ferris for your special 10% discount. Head to crimecon.co.uk to book your tickets today. And that discount code again, Ferris, as in my last name. Ferris like the wheel, Ferris like Beulah, whatever way you choose to remember it. Don't forget to put it in and you'll get 10% off. Introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy, and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 